from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, I am chatting with Allison Sepinara. She's an anxiety healer, a licensed professional counselor, certified specialist one and two school counselor. And I'll get into everything that she and I talk about in just a moment. And by the way, she is teaching a seven days of anxiety healing masterclass for all of you who would love to take a class for a week. It's online. And heal your anxiety. 
Everybody talks about getting a beach body for the summer. Never mind now. Why don't you get a beach nervous system? <laughs> that's that's not a thing. But um, well, I'll just give you the info right now. So you will get 20% off if you put anxiety bites all smushed together. No spaces between anxiety and bites, all uppercase. And I'll put it in the show notes exactly how you should do it. So there's a link down there. And again, you're going to get 20% off of her Anxiety Healing Masterclass, which begins on June 13th. And that is just for my listeners. Before I get to that, I probably won't be doing another all-listener email episode because we just have so many wonderful guests coming up and we're pretty booked up. So season one ends um, second week of August. And our, our calendar is packed until then. So I thought I would just read some emails at the beginning of every episode. And I have to tell you, the ADHD episode, I got such an overwhelming number of emails. I think only second to the OCD episode where people were contacting me just from everywhere and saying that they felt so much better hearing that the number one, you know, most popular, most normal symptom of OCD are these unwanted thoughts about harming others. And it just, oh, it, it just helps so many people. But today I will read you the emails from the fellow ADHDers out there. And I'll tell you this, that episode meant so much to me because it really took I hate saying this because it's such a my own research. And again, I don't say that about other things, but it did take my own research. Not, not, it's not, you know, when people say, I did my own research about the vaccine, I'm not talking about alternative research to research that's out there. I'm talking about the people that I was working with. My therapist had no information on ADHD. And I just felt like I was spinning my wheels and. I parted ways with my therapist this year. And and honestly, <laughs> a lot of it was from everything I've learned on this podcast in the sense that I realized that there are certain specialties I need to find a therapist that, you know, who deals more with certain things or certain things don't actually need a therapist. They just need more tools over here or whatnot. I mean, I've been with my therapist over 15 years going once a week. So it's like, you know, I don't recommend everyone just jump up and leave their therapist. But this this was something I've been thinking about for about a year, but it really became crystal clear when I realized I think she's misdiagnosed my ADHD as other things. And then, of course, I have a psychiatrist who, you know, prescribes medication and who, yes, says I have ADHD. And, and But it's, it's just from he doesn't have it himself. And so he's not going to know every single thing or how it affects women as opposed to, you know. And so he doesn't specialize in ADHD. So sometimes I teach him things from what I've read from other ADHD experts or whatnot. But just the, the things I've been reading about ADHD all year have really put into perspective my entire life. Moments in my entire life where I thought, what was that about? What was that reaction? What was this? And it it's actually very easy to forgive myself because I just had this kind of thing that it felt like something all over was wrong with me. And in a way it was, I had this you know, neuro, neurodevelopmental disorder 
that does touch on a lot of the executive functions of the brain that, that have to do with emotion or maybe you're bad with money or maybe this or that. But if, when it's all happening at once, it's hard when someone says, oh, you're acting like this, maybe of codependency or maybe of this. And you're like, yeah, but what are all the other things? And, and you start to think, am I just cr- like straight up crazy, which I know is not a term we like to use. But in the privacy of our own heads, I do think we worry about that, whatever we think crazy means. And again, like to have something that impedes your executive functions, it doesn't make you a lost cause. It doesn't make you a hopeless case. And it certainly doesn't make you, quote, crazy. It just means now you have an answer. This one, And it all comes down to the same thing, self-soothing. And for me, it's changing my mind about what will make me feel better. I'm still stuck in the loop a lot of times that getting the 35 item to-do list done in an unreasonable amount of time, meaning a short amount of time, will is the only thing that will make me feel better. When everything's off my plate, I can, my life is over there. My life is just beyond the to-do list. And it really, honestly, you know, we can sit in therapy sessions and have someone say, do you have intimacy issues? And, and it's like, I don't, I can't even relate to what you're saying and I'm not being defensive. I just, no, I, I'm, I'm trying to explain that I can't get past this wall in front of me, which is there is no relief until all 35 things are done on this list. Do I have to pull an all-nighter? And then my life begins the next day. Then I'll have time to call friends back, maybe go on a date, maybe grocery shop and make dinner for myself. And it's like in times of uncertainty and stress, that can be louder for me, this notion that my life is on the other end of the to-do list. I actually had a really good handle on it during the 2020 lockdown. I didn't have to worry about an income. I had some writing jobs that I was doing remotely. And I just had this realization that, oh, wow, I spent a lot of my time pre-lockdown in this notion that life begins after the to-do list. And then, as you know, the to-do list never ends. And I had a real concrete example of, oh, you know how many nights that I wished I'd gone out and met that friend or, you know, if I'm writing a script or something, you know, I wish I'd taken a two hour coffee break to see a friend because if you're a writer, you don't actually write nine to six, you know, or 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You you procrastinate and take breaks, but I get in this zone where I can't even engage with other people. And, and so I had this really great balance, you know, right after the vaccine came out and I was vaccinated and I felt like I was getting back to things. And I really, from having spent a year alone, I felt this real sense of I'm never again going to let the overwhelm trick me into thinking I can't do X, Y, and Z until I finish this other stuff. And it worked for a while. But again, that was a a perspective that's temporary because we get used to whatever we're in. So back to life, I fell back into the way I used to do life. And now that I can look at it as this ADHD thing, which is like, look, I can keep doing it this way and insisting that there's a day when this to-do list ends. Or I can self... Now, when you try to take that to-do list away from me, say, Jen, you're going to go to bed right now, or you're going to watch some TV, and you're not going to get this thing done tonight. And it's not even due tomorrow, so you don't need to do it tomorrow. I know, but... So what feeling are you trying to accomplish? And it's like, I'm trying to accomplish a feeling that everything is done so that it's not in the back of my head when I'm trying to enjoy my life. And it's like, well, then your job, Jen, is to try to enjoy your life knowing you've got this thing to write that you're going to perform next month, knowing that 
you have to finish this script you're writing. You know, it's like, I, I have to relearn to, to integrate better. And I had done it before. And so I noticed that it's that ADHD thing when I have trouble self-soothing around it. If you try to tell me you have to take a break and go see a friend for an hour, knowing you have things to do when you get home, that actually disturbs me physically. I start to feel uncomfortable. And I know that intellectually, I don't even agree with the person that doesn't want to take the break. I'm, the, I'm a take a break person. I'd rather never work again, to be honest. <laughs> but it's like, it doesn't matter where it comes from. And it's, it's, it would seem too simple for a therapist. It's, it's like, I know they get excited when things seem to connect, but it's not. And how about in your childhood? Did you have friendships? Like, I'm a totally social person. I don't have intimacy issues. I, I literally have this bizarre overwhelm right now. And I, I am convinced that doing the same thing over and over is going to get me the result I want, even though it's not the definition of insanity, right? So I have to force myself to do things differently. And it, it can be putting less things on the to-do list. For me recently, I started bullet journaling, which is a thing I never thought I would do, but it helps my ADHD and I can get into that another time. But so just learning everything I've learned this year has changed my perspective. It's helped me actually help myself. And it's showed me what types of therapy are working for me right now and what types aren't. Anyway, I feel like all of you who wrote to me, who know that you have ADHD or weren't sure what you had, you had a similar realization just by listening to the episode. And it makes me really happy. Again, I'm not here to diagnose anyone. I just want people to listen. And if they hear something they like, we're never going to solve any anxiety issue in any one episode. But I'm hoping that you take the breadcrumbs from an episode and keep learning for yourself or bring it to your therapist or whatever. So I'm just glad that it got a lot of your minds going. So I'm going to read these. Hi, Jen. First of all, I want to acknowledge what a wonderful person you are. Okay, I didn't, I'm not trying to compliment myself. Okay, I'm just fast forward. What a great episode. I learned so much and it stuck. I didn't even take my normally obsessive notes. The funny thing is when I saw the title of this week's podcast, I was thinking that maybe I should skip this episode because I didn't think it would be that much of an interest to me regarding the ADHD. But because I have a sister that had it as a child, I thought maybe I'll be able to learn something about her. So I was only kind of listening to it at first. However, halfway into it, I was like, whoa, that's me. Whoa, that's me as well. That's totally me. And it kept happening. I ended up skipping the nap I was planning and finished the podcast. I happened to have counseling this afternoon, so I talked to my counselor about looking into diagnosis. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think I finally found what's going on with my head. And to boot, I turned 40 and my coping mechanisms have all gone to pot, so I am grateful to have learned that I am right on time coming to this realization. I love the surf exercise. I am in DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, and it reminds me of the stop skill, a skill I have found a lot of value in. Stop stands for stop, take a step back, observe, proceed mindfully. Oh, I like that. But it's not as poignant. It doesn't quite scratch the itch. Kristen Carter has showed how to process an emotion, something I have longed for. A lot of people say you have to feel it and not stuff it, and then they don't really give you a map. This feels like she's given me directions to emotional freedom. Now, if I could remember the task long enough to complete it, ha ha ha. I really appreciate what you are doing in this world. 
Who knew an episode of Drunk History would lead me to finding you doing this wonderful work? Um, I won't say her name because she didn't say if I could. That makes me so happy. I love, I love that someone sees the title of an episode and says, that's not for me. And it turns out it is. I do that all the time with stuff. Hello, Jen. I'm an ADHDer. I feel like I got a double birthday gift from you. One, I woke up to a new episode of Anxiety Bites, so that started my day off great. Two, and most importantly, I identified with most of the points Kristen and you discussed. Everything I need to do is all of the utmost importance. I shut down if I can't get things done to perfection, and I can remember a random day in elementary school with crystal clarity, yet can't remember to pick up everything I went to the store for. Fortunately, I have an appointment with my therapist next week, and I'm going to bring this up to her and see what she has to say. Thank you for putting this podcast out. Love all the good you are doing. Again, I won't say his name because he didn't indicate if I could. Um, And my last one here, I, I just picked three, but there are so many. Dear Jen, listening to the episode with Kristen Carter almost made me cry on the train traveling home. Listening to the executive functions and the explanation of all tasks being at the volume resonated so deeply that it actually explains my inability to be able to focus on any one task when I have multiple pressing deadlines. Writing all the lists in the world never helps, just overwhelms to the point I can be so stressed and anxious that absolutely nothing gets done because I don't know where to start. It has also been a stalling point in progressing further in my career. Although listening to the podcast has given names to my anxiety, this episode resonates so deeply that I have been on the fence about asking my doctor about a referral, but now the appointment is made to get started on a resolution, which is my at times crippling social anxiety. We'll also get a look in, but that's another story. Thank you for the podcast. Love all that you do. Well, it's interesting you say that my guest today, Allison Sepinara, has a lot of wisdom about social anxiety. She is someone that has suffered social anxiety herself. We actually didn't talk about it a lot on this podcast. And I know that it's a subject I've danced around with a few guests here and there, never totally went deep, deep into it. But again, I highly recommend her seven-day mental health masterclass. It will guide you towards a life of anxiety relief, inner peace, and mental health recovery. Seven days is all it takes to start your healing journey. And there's no better time than right now to work on your mental health Remember, you are in control of your life. You deserve to give yourself a chance to get better and be better. 20% off if you use the code ANXIETYBITES, all caps, words smushed together in the show notes. And again today, my guest, Allison Sepinara, what I love about um, her book is that it's almost like a you just want to mark up every page. It's everything you would ever need if you are into not just cognitive behavioral therapy as something that helps your anxiety. But if you're into, I think spiritual is too spiritual of a word to use. But if you're into more using your creativity, it's not manifesting like the toxic positivity episode we had a little while ago. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's But it's visualization, which is really good for your brain and really good f- as a form of meditation in a way to calm yourself down, but to visualize what you want without getting focused on you must achieve the result or you're some big loser, but just feeling how it feels in your body to figure out what you even want. 
we might have this idea of what we want, but if we actually sat down and did a visualization exercise of what, well, what would that look like and what would I be doing? Sometimes you realize, oh, I don't even really want this. Or I do want this and, oh, I'm getting excited about thinking. When I think about it this way, instead of when I just let it roll around in my head without the construct of a visual uh, visualization exercise, I start to say negative self-talk. So what I really like about her book, The Anxiety Healer's Guide, Coping Strategies and Mindful Techniques to Calm the Mind and Body, is it is a just jam-packed, but it's a small book, perfect book to take on a plane, perfect book to take on a car trip. Keep it in your bag, your purse, whatever. You can always flip through and just find one thing that you can do in that moment. And it's not just your typical take a deep breath. I mean, that's in there too. And breathing is important. I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you something about our episode. I wanted to make a vision board and her book talks about making vision boards. And she and I have a, uh, like a mini therapy session about it. I also wanted to bring up my resistance to making a vision board with her so she could give me a little therapy so that you could all hear what a therapy session a lot of times sounds like in case you still are in the dark about it and you're thinking, I don't know if that's for me or do they go too deep or how is it helpful? I think our 10-minute talk about vision boards could be, you could be a nice fly on the wall in that moment. Um, I'm going to be totally honest. I recorded the outro to this episode a few weeks ago <laughs> and I don't remember if I talked about what I ended up doing about the vision board. I may have said I started it, but but either way, I'm recording this now just a few days before the episode comes out, and I finished my vision board, so you're getting a spoiler, but I think that's okay. But what I noticed was everything on the board is everything I already have or am capable of having because it's something I've had before. It's just I want more and bigger, and and that's not bad. I'm not putting myself down by saying it that way. You know, I have things on there about performing in, in specific places and spaces, and I'm working towards that. There hasn't been any struggles to get there. It's just I'm at the beginning of the journey. So I'm hoping it leads to these certain performance spaces. They're on my vision board. I'm working on a one-woman show. I've, I've kind of changed careers, left stand-up comedy, and gone more towards doing it this way. Um, you know, I have on there that I'm a writer who sells TV shows. Well, I have done that before. I am a writer, but I just, what I mean is I want to keep doing that. I, I want to stay in my career and not have it end. Okay, uh, let's hope. You know, um, I want to live in New York. I want to live in LA. I have both of those on there. I do live in both, but I'm renting apartments. And, uh, you know, it's like I want everything that I already have, but just a little more financial security, a little more stability, and a little more ownership of things. And then a lot of travel, which... There's really nothing stopping me right now, except I don't have time due to all my jobs. I need to work. It's a little expensive right now to actually think of traveling. And then I'm a little just kind of ugh, kind of bummed out about COVID, like just don't feel like traveling. But all of these things are very achievable. And what I noticed was I'm already mostly living the life I want to live. And the only things getting in the way are really big, big things way out of my control, like I said before COVID, or just like yeah, I mean, before I have this beautiful brand new uh, apartment in New York or home in Los Angeles, I've got to earn more money and I've got to save and I've got to hopefully someday be financially in a place where I can, you know, buy these dream homes that, that I may never achieve, but they're millions of dollars. <laughs> so it's fine if not, you know, but I'm basically mostly living the life I want. The vision board is not 
something that I look at and think, well, I could never have any of this. It really showed me that I'm already there in a way. I just want more of what I have. And honestly, I just want a guarantee that none of it will end. So I thought that was very interesting. It made me, I don't know what it made me feel. It definitely didn't make me feel anything bad. I didn't think, oh, well, you're, you know, you don't have any dreams left. You're just so boring. I, I thought the opposite. I thought I was really, I'm really proud of myself. But I still have a ways to go in terms of there needs to be just some more security around certain things. Don't we all want that? But I think the amount I want is a reasonable amount. And in my industry, there's, there's very little security. It doesn't always last more than a few months. You know, jobs are strange and they come and they go. So anyway, I did the vision board and I don't feel embarrassed about it. It is on my kitchen table and, you know, nobody's come over. But if they did, I wouldn't be ashamed of it. So it'll really be interesting, I think, for you to hear my little therapy session with Allison because everything in my head, it's not even really how I feel. And I wouldn't have known it until I took the steps to tell her and then to then do the assignment. Okay, well, this was a very long intro. And when I am done talking, you are going to hear my conversation with the absolutely wonderful Alison Sepinar. I have your book in front of me, even though no one else can see this but you, but The Anxiety Healer's Guide, Coping Strategies and Mindfulness Techniques to Calm the Mind and Body. What I love about this book is, to me, it's a Bible of every single thing about anxiety from the mental to the physical to the spiritual. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Well, I have, I have actually called it that before in other um, interviews I had, the Bible of anxiety, or I actually call it now the encyclopedia. That's the word I'm using, less religious, the encyclopedia. Yeah. Yeah, non-denominational. Um, but yeah, essentially, I so I've struggled with anxiety for most of my life. I didn't realize I struggled with anxiety as a child up until like 10 years ago. I didn't really know. I knew I had problems as a child socially and emotionally. I'm a very highly sensitive person. Um, but I don't think there was a lot of language back then for my parents and most people to know what kids were going through. And anxiety in a child looks very different than it does in an adult. Children don't have words to express themselves. So it comes out somatically a lot of times. So for me, it was in my stomach all the times. So I had stomach aches all the time. So I recently um, started, you know, not recently, and my journey has been probably 10, 15 years since I had like a real, my first real panic attack. And that's when I knew something was really wrong. Um, it was on my 30th birthday and my sister threw me a surprise party and <laughs> that will never happen again. No one will throw me surprise parties. <laughs> um, I was just going through a really hard time in my life at that point, and I hadn't talked to anybody about it. And so my sister had invited all these people to this party that I didn't even like anymore and I didn't even want to talk to and ended up in the bathroom and in my room the entire day. And everyone's like, what's going on? What's wrong with you? It was, wow. yes, it was really, really difficult. And so um, that day I knew something was definitely wrong because that was a panic attack. So I started seeking out, um, and I am a psychologist, full disclosure, you know, I'm a therapist yeah. too, um, but I'm also human first. So I realized that I definitely needed to get some extra support, which I did, and started researching a lot about anxiety and reading more on it. Um, 
and understanding more about the therapy that I had been working on with clients that I wanted to try it on myself, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. That's uh, the research on that has been so effective for anxiety disorders. Um, so I started learning more about my childhood and just that I really struggled with social anxiety, which no one would ever, who knows me would ever say because I'm very energetic and I'm engaged with people when I'm out, I'm really engaging, but I'm also very insecure. And sometimes Mm -hmm. being in that environment, it's almost like I have to be on, I have to be this type of person. And that's what gives me the anxiety. So in doing all that education research for myself and for the clients that I worked with, I started putting together this toolkit for myself um, of all different strategies and resources and coping techniques and created this toolkit for myself. And I remember thinking as I was thinking about the book, like, I wish I had something like this book when I was going through this in the beginning that I could go to and say, oh my gosh, I need to create a toolkit, but I don't even know what these tools are. Like it took me years to research a lot of these Eastern, you know, Eastern um, world tools, right? Like in the holistic world, Eastern medicine is not something that's taught a lot in the Western world. Right. Learning a lot more about meditation. And I kind of consider myself a Buddhist. So I am spiritual. Um, You don't have to be, you know, to do this work. But, um, you know, learning more about just nature and the therapy of nature is huge for me and how to use your mind to visualize calming spaces and um, what kind of tools are really self soothing, like tangible tools and all of that. I just wanted an encyclopedia. There was something that really hit me about your surprise party that gave you a panic attack. To the uninitiated, to someone who's never had anxiety, they might think, oh, she just doesn't like a lot of people. And the surprise is what gave her a panic attack. But when you said, you know, some of these people I didn't really like anymore, I feel like there's something with being someone that has anxiety. Sometimes it takes us a really long time to kind of know what our feelings are. And we may not even be sharing our thoughts and lives with those closest to us, we're figuring it out for ourselves. So there's no world where your sister would know who you like and don't like. And it's almost like you're living this separate life. And people are like, well, I didn't know. I mean, how was I supposed to know? And you're like, well, I I didn't know to tell you. And I just think it sounds more like the anxiety was about, this isn't my life. Why are you giving me this party? Like, this isn't me. Was that what you're experiencing? You just hit the nail on the head because I don't think I really knew who I was until like 10 years ago. So I'm 40, going to be 42. And so that was kind of close to my 30th birthday. So after that, and I started really this journey of learning more about myself and why I react in certain environments. So for 10 years, I've been sort of learning and creating this toolkit. But before then, I had no idea. I actually, in my 20s, I numbed a lot of depression that I had also. And anxiety and depression are very connected as well. I kind of call them siblings. Like their symptoms look very different, but the thoughts we have are very similar. We go through both of them. So I was struggling with both, but I had a lot of depression and I was masking it with drinking. I was drinking a lot. I was going out with my friends a lot. I mean, obviously you're in your 20s. You're going to be like having fun, but like I was blacking out. And that's not healthy. Um, I couldn't remember some of my nights. I remember, again, going back to the social aspect of it. I've always been more insecure around men, right? So I, you know, I I enjoyed 
the whole fun of like meeting guys. And I never really knew how to have like a steady boyfriend. I sort of was just like, I loved the attention from guys. So like, but I was so insecure. So I would go out. And the only way I would feel secure about myself is if I drank a lot. So that was that was something that stemmed from childhood that I learned about that I just didn't feel good about my body. And I had this sort of disordered eating also. Um, and just had to learn so much that that was connected a lot to my childhood because I know we were talking about this before we started, but I was bullied really bad in grade school. And, you know, when you think of trauma, you know, a lot of people hear the word trauma and they think of a huge catastrophe. And these are traumas for sure, like, and very serious ones and different types of abuse, right? Like definitely taking that serious and that's traumatic. But there's also other traumas that happen in people's lives that I don't think um, they give credit to. um, Because maybe it's like a little T trauma, you know, and they're just like, maybe that's not a big of a deal. But it really is, especially for children. So like bullying is a huge traumatic thing for a child. And the situation I went through has carried on. Well, you mentioned, you know, in your intro that when you were talking about your book that kids experience anxiety differently. So it's somatic for them. Does that mean that means in the body, right? Yes, because children don't really have the language to know how to express their feelings. So a lot of the work I do in my private practice with kids is feelings education. So I'll give them, um, you know, feeling faces with the feeling word underneath and like a page of them. And I'll teach them how to use I statements that say, I feel this because, and honestly, I do that with some adults too, because if you're not taught that as a child, (laughs) you're not going to know. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. When I was a kid, I went to the nurse's office a lot with a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, there were, again, like just kind of vague memories, hushed tones. Is there trouble at home? It always went to, there must be big T trauma going on. Are you being hit or beaten? Which I wasn't, you know, like the stomach aches were happening at school (laughs) because I was being picked on by some people. I had friends, but then there were boys that picked on me. Mm -hmm. And it was weird because it went to this, people didn't have language for this in the eighties. So it was either you're being beaten by your parents or everything's normal. And since I wasn't being beaten by my parents, nobody could figure out what the stomach aches were. My mom took me to the doctor and they said she's allergic to milk. But I I brought the bullying to my parents and they treated it seriously. But the school didn't. And this was, mm. you know, for years and years, they just did not, they just thought it was normal. And so my point is that those little T traumas, it's, it's been very hard for me as an adult to think that that had anything to do with anything I might feel now, because mm-hmm. I go, I wasn't trying to be friends with the boys that were bullying me. I truly thought they were jerks. I didn't, I really didn't value their opinion. I had a very good self-esteem, but of course it hurts and it does something to you when people are just being cruel for no reason and adults won't protect you like that has to do something, right? What does that do to yeah. a kid's Well, soul? words hurt. I yeah. mean, no matter how old you are, like yeah. words hurt if someone says something about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest part of this entire journey. And that's so connected to mental health in general is really loving who you are. And so as a child, you don't really have, again, you don't have the language to, you're, you're learning who you are. So like, who do I love? I don't know. I'm learning who I am, right? So it's up to your caregivers and it's up to the people around you to like reinforce those things about you that are wonderful. And, but they can't control everything, right? And so much of anxiety is about wanting to control things. So the people around you, you feel so out of control as a child because the other people around you don't know how to protect you either. So the trauma is basically this sense of feeling this loss of control and not knowing how to regulate yourself. So that's where kind of like the science comes in because we have our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system has a sympathetic side and a parasympathetic side. And the sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight response. And our parasympathetic side is our, you know, rest and digest. So, um, there's back then there was again wasn't really education about this. There's way more research now to show that there are hundreds and thousands of exercises and strategies you can use to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. 
which is basically my book. <laughs> Every single yeah. exercise in my book has been researched and activates that parasympathetic nervous system. So being able to kind of create a toolkit of what works for you, of these strategies and your support systems and these exercises and coping tools, bre- breathing exercises, that's the best thing, like returning to your breath, um, like yoga, meditation, learning how to what works for you um, and creating that is going to help regulate your nervous system, but you have to make it like a daily practice. You can't just kind of open the book when you're in the middle of a panic attack and it'll calm you down instantly. That's not really how it works. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so thinking back about bullying. So when somebody is bullied, for example, and it's in their body and, you know, their therapist tells them or something 20, 30 years later as an adult that that's still affecting them. That's how, right? It's not, I think a lot of people go, no, 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 it doesn't affect me because they're, they're thinking about feelings, right? They're not feeling sad about it. They're not feeling mad about it. But you're saying if somebody bullied me or bullied someone, that's going to upset your nervous system. You're going to go into some kind of fight or flight as a kid. And then maybe if there's a situation that mirrors that when you're an adult, that kicks in again and you're, and you're in fight or flight and you need to learn to, to regulate. Is that, is that how it works? 100%. But even even worse than that Mm -hmm. is that when you experience any type of trauma, you sort of, your body goes into the, and your mind goes into the state of fight or flight and actually never really leaves it. It sort of stays in that state. There's ways that people might feel, you know, well, I'm laying in bed right now, you know, I'm not, I'm not really like having a panic attack, right? It doesn't look like I'm panicked, but their mind could be racing about a million things. They could be watching a show. So it's, you know, you're in this constant state of it, of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just don't know because we have like 50,000 thoughts a day in our conscious and subconscious mind. So just being able to process those thoughts, that's why I'm obviously a therapist, but I'm so a a proponent of therapy. Um, But... It's it just having someone that can help you kind of tear away at the brain, like kind of an onion, like peel away those thoughts and like see which are intrusive. And that's where the CBT comes in for me, why it's so effective, being able to understand your thought patterns and how intrusive they are, what thoughts are irrational, how you can challenge your thoughts a little bit and what you can do to challenge them and learn how to love yourself and find self-compassion more often. I mean, it's all part of the process. It's a lifelong journey, too. It's not just you're going to be like cured, you know. So it's like to anyone listening who hasn't started on their journey of anxiety recovery. It's like, it doesn't take 30 years to feel better. It just takes 30 years to keep learning every single thing. Yeah. But you will feel better. I think you could feel better by the end of the day if you started doing some little things here and there, right? It, at the very least, calm yourself right. down. Well, so so that's, and I don't, I don't know if you got to this part in the introduction, but that's why in the introduction is so important. So I would say you don't need to read my book like cover to cover, um, except for the intro. <laughs> read the intro definitely, and then create your toolkit by practicing some of the exercises in whatever chapter you want to start with. I mean, there's a chapter yeah. of breath work and then visualization exercises, self-soothing tools, distraction ideas. I mean, there's all different chapters. You don't have to go, you know, in chronological order. But with the introduction, one of the most important things you can do to start with is begin by rating yourself every day. 
So I have a rating scale in the introduction, and it goes from one to 10. 10 being the most scared and anxious you've ever felt. Maybe you had a panic attack and you're in the ER, right? That's like the worst. And one is the most calm you've ever felt. I mean, where are you? What's your happy place, right? Like your brain, you just feel really calm and balanced. And the reason it's not zero is because the emotion of fear and worry is something we need, right? Like actual emotion, both of those emotions, they protect us in a way from actual danger. So if we're actually, if we're in front of a bear, we need, we need worry and we need fear to tell us what to do, like our sympathetic nervous system. Do we fight, flight, freeze? You know, what do we need to do in that moment? The hard thing about anxiety is that anxiety is just a really debilitating and perceived fear and worry, right? It's something we perceive as dangerous, but in reality, it's really not that dangerous. Right. It's like there's actually no bear. <laughs> no, but our body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. So that's why people with panic attacks, they could be sitting in the middle of class and they just start having a panic attack. And it's because their brain is something, the thoughts they're having, something is making them feel they're unsafe. So you want to start by rating yourself from one to 10. So wake up in the morning and rate yourself, right? In the middle of the day, rate yourself. At the end of the night, rate yourself. And there's actually another um, rating scale that's on the, the other page that is is like how to heal yourself when you're at that certain number. So, you know, if you're at a two or three, you want to practice like one or two of your healing tools, all that stuff. Um, when you get to the higher numbers, it's going to be a lot harder to come out of that. So you could right. practice, you could definitely practice some of these tools, um, especially breathing is really good. These breathing exercises are great when you start to panic, but it's going to be very hard because our brain is already in an irrational state. So we're not going to be able to come out of it. So that's why I say practice whatever's in your toolkit when you're at like a two, three, or four. Mm -hmm. So that's a mix of a daily practice and then it becomes a habit. And then you just know what to do when you start feeling these triggers. I had this exact... One of my first experiences with working on any kind of anxiety was I had never been to therapy, but when I was 19 or 20, I took a fear of flying class. Stop. Yeah. I went to the airport. We talked about this in my, on our podcast, my podcast too, the anxiety chicks. We talked about this and my, my co-host took this class. It, it was the best thing I'd ever done. It was, it was in Boston, you know, back in the nineties when you could just kind of walk into the airport and they had, um. There was a conference room in the Delta Airlines lounge, and there was a plane parked right outside of the window. And my wow. panic was so bad around flying, my phobia, which turned out, you know, as we all know, just a fear of panicking on a plane. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, once I found out, oh, it can't really crash. I mean, it, you know, the odds are this and that. Well, I still had the sensations, and that's because I'd had a panic attack on a plane as a kid, and I never wanted to feel that again. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And then I, I practiced avoidance for years and didn't get on planes and missed out on so many things. And we basically desensitized ourselves slowly. So that plane that I said that was outside the window, he didn't open the blinds until the third week of class. And then we spent one class with just a plane right out there. And we would rate our panic levels or anxiety levels beginning, middle, end of class he taught us what to avoid eating, not for life, but just, you know, obviously don't have coffee before you get on yeah. a plane, simple yes. things. Exactly. Yep. But we did visualizations every night. Well, we were supposed to, that was our homework. Uh -huh. And we had to do 30 minutes of progressive muscle relaxation every night. 
My favorite. My, my favorite. favorite. And then we had to visualize ourselves um, in a happy place. But then the visualizations graduated to try to keep that feeling of the happy place, but now visualize yourself on the plane. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we it didn't make sense to me at the time because, again, we were doing all this in the safety of our living rooms. And But we did it every night. And it does change. You know, I still had a lot of anxiety on the flight, but it wasn't as bad as, as it used but to you be. You got on. I mean, I you- got on. We flew. I think everyone in the class honestly did a little better than me, but it, because I still didn't fly for a while after that, I needed more mm-hmm. practice. Yeah. But because I could, I honestly was stubborn. I couldn't let go of the fact that this, like, it was like, well, it's working, but what if it doesn't? I couldn't stop the what if it doesn't. Oh, no. Yes. Those are the hardest. But anyway, all that to say that when I think about, hearing the words visualization or practice this when you're calm, it is actually one of the greatest things that helped me because you're giving yourself, as you know, your own experience that you can, when you're in an anxious situation, you can say, hey, remember when I was sitting on my couch and I felt great or I felt relaxed? Mm -hmm. Let's try to go there now instead of someone telling you how to feel you, you have your own experience to draw and you, you know, you don't, it doesn't feel like someone's telling you what to do. You, it's your own work that you've done. I mean, those, those exercises and PMR progressive muscle relaxation is like a huge, it's in bold, like stars in my toolkit because it is the most effective, I think for people that experience stomach aches or other physical symptoms often, that don't turn into a full-blown panic attack yet, but, you know, you can feel like things are happening. Progressive muscle relaxation is so helpful for that. But, yeah, practicing these exercises, like when you're, you know, at the lower, when you wake up. I mean, most people will wake up at that I've talked to at like a two or a three. Um, but there's people that do struggle with morning anxiety, for sure, that they'll wake up at a higher level. But in general, um, it's a good, if you can fit that into like your morning routine, Something as far as, you know, um, journaling, I also talk a lot about in the book, doing some uh, gratitude exercise in the morning, um, doing a short yoga um, for anxiety video or a meditation. I love Insight Timer. It's my favorite. I know people use Calm and Headspace and they're all great. Um, I just love Insight Timer. I like that app too. Yeah. And just making it part of your routine in the morning as best as you can. I know people have families and kids and I know sometimes you're just like, when am I supposed to do that? When I'm like trying to pack a million lunches, but being able to make it a priority. So, and, and I hope people listening aren't be like, Oh my God, I can't do that. But waking up like 15 minutes earlier, if you know that you have, you don't have that time and just making it, you don't even need to leave your bed. Just do a meditation in your bed for the morning. I've done that too, where it's like, I always feel so great in the morning because I'm, I'm probably sleepy, but it feels very calm. So it's yes. hard for me to motivate to do anything. So I'm like, I feel great, you know, but I've started to, um, you know, not started to, but I've realized that, well, that, yeah, this is the time to do that stuff. And of course, like I don't have kids, so I can, you know, just get up and do that. But of course it, it doesn't, it's still hard to motivate, you know, um, and I will do a five minute laying in bed meditation and I'll set my alarm just in case I fall asleep. But you know, that perfectionistic brain goes five minutes. I wasn't going to do anything. And it, if I can shut that up and do it, 
it it's motivating me to do maybe five minutes more. You know, it feels good. Yes. Yes. And, and that's, I mean, perfectionism and anxiety are very, very connected as well. I mean, every single client I work with in my, in my um, practice and people I've talked to in my DMs, um, perfectionism is huge. And I think what, what it comes down to is so in the CBT world, um, we talk a lot about something called core beliefs. And essentially, they're just these like beliefs that we have about ourselves that kind of create our worldview and how we see and perceive the world. And they're very, very deep rooted. So it's difficult. It's way more difficult to change those core beliefs than it is to kind of challenge a thought, right, or reframe a thought like that's that's easier to try and do those exercises. But when it comes down to these core beliefs, it is really hard to, to change them, but it's not impossible. And it's 1000 percent you know, in recovery, you can do it. Um, I, for me, I, I thrived when I was with a professional and helping me with this. But I would say that's the core beliefs for people with anxiety. I would say like the number one, uh, this is not based on my research, but that I've heard over and over again and with myself is feeling like you're not good enough. Mm. And so with perfectionism comes this belief about yourself. A lot of times it's like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. Um, you know, I just did a post on my Instagram about this today, about feeling like you're, it's so easy to compare yourself to other people now with social media. And we didn't have that back when we were younger. I mean, it was kind of nice. This is the one part I was happy about that during my bullying thing. I could actually go home from school and not have you to worry escape. about bullying. Yeah. I could escape it. I didn't have mm-hmm. social media. And I, that saved me, I feel like, being able to not see those kids or hear or nothing. They weren't able to do anything besides school. And so being able to, but I think that, you know, contributed to my belief about myself is like, why am I not enough? Why are these people saying these things about me? So the perfectionism is real. And being able to tap into that belief and understand, like, where does that come from? And am I really not enough? But what makes me enough, you know? And that comes that there comes the self-love and the self-compassion piece. Like, there's so many different parts of who I am. And anxiety is one piece. And that makes me feel damaged sometimes. But there's so many other wonderful parts of myself. What are they, you know? Are they really <laughs> things that, and sometimes when you're first starting this work, you're just like, I don't think I have any parts of my, and you're just like, um, okay, we, let's think about what do you do in your life? What do you like to do? And then you kind of talk about it and you just learn to love yourself more. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think my anxiety got manageable or better or dissipated until I truly loved myself. And I... I wish I could tell people how I did it, but it just was over years and years of work. And I didn't even know I didn't love myself because I, you know, it's hard to explain what that feels like. Totally. Right. But it was more like my life was more chaotic when I didn't. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> you know? Yes. Oh, for and, sure. Yeah. And so I think that for anxiety, it's, it's like for people that can't begin to do the littlest thing to alleviate symptoms, I always suspect somewhere in their mind is a belief. You, you have it worse than anyone. You can't get better, which then under that is like, you know, what do you even deserve to feel better for? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's almost, there's also so much shame because there's still a stigma associated with mental health. 
in our country. I mean, and let's not even talk about other countries that don't even, some of them don't even have mental health resources. They don't even really believe in psychology, you know? I mean, there's, um, which is why I actually love my platform because Instagram is so, like sometimes I'll get messages from people in India or other other countries that have no access to therapy or resources. And the only education they're getting is Instagram, my page. And, you know, I, I wonder how, ama- like, I just think about how amazing that is that they can actually get information at least if they can't have access to it. I was interviewing um, this woman named Dr. Nina Vossen, who is a, she works at Stanford University, and she teaches kind of young entrepreneurs how to create things that will help in the anxiety space. Because there's some statistic—I'm going to get it wrong—but it's it's out there on the previous episode that of all the millions and billions of people that have enough anxiety to warrant help, there just aren't enough therapists. And so, things like your Instagram page, and things like your book, or even this podcast, or whatever. Mm-hmm. can help people because it's not like you do nothing or you go to therapy. There's those little breadcrumbs along the way. Like someone can pick up your book and they can learn to rate their anxiety. They can learn rectangle breathing. That's going to alleviate things. It will change their anxiety. They'll have a little more self-esteem. They'll be able to get up and do the next thing. Maybe some people don't even need therapy, right? Maybe they just need some tools. Right. Maybe they'll right. need therapy later, whatever. But I think, you know, I'm a, I'm glad to hear doctors and therapists say, no, this is good because I'm always afraid. Oh my God, you know, I can't do a podcast about anxiety. I'm not a therapist. Like we're not giving therapy. We're giving um, actual tools that people can use. It's sort of like you watch a home improvement show on HGTV. No one's saying now you're an interior designer. They're just saying, here's, here's what shiplap is and here's how to put it up in your kitchen. Right. Like you're allowed to do that even though you're not, a therapist or a client or patient of one. Like, I think that stigma too of like, are we allowed to do this? You know, it always seems like that is for closed doors and laying on a couch and and it's liberating to, to say we can help each other. Right. Totally. It is. And it's so great now that, you know, this is the upside of social media, right? I talk about a lot of the pros and cons of it, but being able to work with people like you, right? And we can work together. I mean, and I think it's so wonderful that I've been able to meet so many different people that aren't just, I, I not not just in the psychology field. I mean, I just, being able to end the stigma for mental health and raise awareness for it, but no, being able to, yeah, like have, and it's really about education, right? So yeah. we talked about like kind of bringing it full circle. We talked about as kids, we didn't, our parents didn't have feeling education or like, and if you think about it, it's no one's fault, right? Like it's a generational thing. Like their parents, um, their parents were just trying to survive. I mean, there was like the great depression, right? No one's thinking about like how you're feeling. They're just trying to eat every day, (laughs) but we're just learning that feelings education is so important, which is why I was a school counselor for a little while before Mm. I went into my private practice. And as an elementary school counselor, now the guidance counselors go into the classrooms and they have guidance lessons which I think started maybe 10 years ago in schools. 
Yeah. So, and I've done a number of them. Go into the classrooms and you have a, you know, a a lesson about feelings and about anger management and social skills. And yeah, and the guidance counselors, I don't know in every single state. I know just Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But the curriculum now definitely includes social emotional learning in a lot of elementary schools, which that was never a thing. Like, we never got social-emotional learning. Well, can I tell you, in my other career as a comedian, I have a bit about um, being bullied that I managed to make funny. And I finally struck back at the bullies one day, physically. Oh. And I got in trouble for beating up a boy with a hockey uh-huh. stick. Mm-hmm. Look at you, though. And I had to go to anger management. They told me boys will be boys. I had to go to anger management. And I always joke, you don't know the guidance counselor is there until you have to go see her. And it's not the nurse's office. That's socially acceptable to go lay down if you feel sick. But the guidance counselor's office is like, there's another door that you go through the nurse's office, open the door to the guidance counselor. She's like in some netherworld. And like, you know, she sits there and it's like, you're the weirdo if you go to the guidance counselor. And and that was me. And I remember like, you know, I loved it because I was like, yeah, I'm going to chill and talk to the guidance counselor. You know, I thought it was fun. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, you know, that now, you, now you're even more stigmatized. First of all, you're the bullied person. Now you're the person that talks to the guidance counselor. Like, so the fact that now the guidance counselor is coming out from behind <laughs> her office and right. is so great. That's so great. Yes. I mean, I still remember when I was in schools and this was just like seven, eight years ago, still like kids would come into my office, even though they knew me, I was around. I was not just in my office, but they came into my office and sometimes asked me, you know, am I in trouble? Oh, which is just so telling about still talking about things openly, right? It's, it's not, you're not in trouble, you know, talking about feelings is, is healthy. And then, you know, teaching them that it's okay. I mean, again, there's still a stigma. There's still a lot of cultures in the U S and a lot of family dynamics that talking openly about feelings makes you weak, right? That there's this idea that it makes you weak or, um, you're just fine, right? Like I grew up with a parent that definitely I had a lot of strong emotions. It was like, you're fine. You're fine. Very dismissive. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not validating. So, yeah, it's kind of just letting the kids understand that it's OK not to be OK. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when when I took that um, fear flying course, the, the panic was so intense. I couldn't drive to the airport myself because once I saw the signs, the little pictures of the plane, I'm full body shaking. I would have crashed the car. So my dad drove me. My dad's born in 1938. And this, therapy, you know, and he sat in on the class and he I could see him coming to life. He'd never seen coping mechanisms. He loved it. And I just saw his world open up where I really think he got a lot out of it. We never really discussed it. But when I would do the progressive muscle relaxation, he would join me in it. Mm -hmm. Um, When I'd play my little tapes, and yes, they were literally tapes. And I think it's so important that like, My parents never, I don't know where they got this instinct because again, they did not have learning about this when they were growing up, but I think they appreciated that even though I feel like looking back on my life, nobody was talking about it. It was a little more than in their lifetime. So they were really supportive and they did the progressive muscle relaxation with me because they thought it was fun and like everyone should do it, even if you've never been anxious in your life. And so I feel like a lot of times parents will write me and I'm like, okay, 
shit is bad if you're writing a comedian with a podcast who doesn't have kids. Like, <laughs> I don't mean shit's bad in your life. I mean, shit's bad out there. I know what you mean, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, all I can tell them is like what my parents did, which is just, they didn't have to do too much to normalize it. They just had to join in and make it seem like, hey, this is kind of fun. Like, this is a good life skill anybody should have. You know, like that's, that makes a huge difference, I think. I love that you said that because I, I you know, when a child comes into my office, right, the parents are bringing them into my office. And um, it used to be more often like this, but not so much anymore, which is good. But the parent would think they would just drop off the child and I would work with the child and they pick them up. Like they just wouldn't have. <laughs> like they're taking a piano lesson or something. Yeah, like they don't yeah. have to be involved in that because they don't yeah, know about and, piano. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, and I, so my first session is always with just the parents, not even the child yet. And giving them education about like how the process works and that we're trying to change a dynamic of what's going on and not to say anything. A lot of parents, I think, they just take on so much blame themselves. And it's really not the, par the parents do the best that they can with the tools that they know because they didn't get tools from their parents. Like it's nobody's fault. It's very generational. It's just about learning and a lot Thank goodness, oh, so many parents I work with are so open to learning how to help their children. And that's when sometimes we'll be in the room together and we'll all do a feelings education exercise together, right? I'll hold up the sign and I'll say, you know, to the dad, can you say an I statement with how you're feeling right now? And they'll go around. And it's so nice to see the child. They're like staring at the parents and they're so, it's so excited to see their parents talking about openly about that. And they're just like, wow, you feel like that? It's so cute. And it's, it is more about just changing the dynamic. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what I love about your book is how many things you have that are backed by science, but I call them the fun things because they're what I do for fun. Um, Affirmations, vision boards, your self-soothing box, uh, talking to yourself in the mirror. And I know if I'm listening to this podcast, I always try to jump into the listener's head. I think it's the comedian and me. I'm coming out on stage. I'm like, I already know what you're going to say. You're going to heckle me this, but, but I hear everyone go, I want to do all this, you know, visions and this, and that's cheesy. And it's like, you know, maybe it's cheesy, but maybe it works. And I love this as I keep calling it stuff. You talk about, um, visualizations and you know, again, on another episode, I talked to Whitney Goodman, the author of Toxic Positivity, and and we were talking about when things like The Secret get all twisted in our society, and we have people trying to manifest a car or a house, and then it doesn't work, and they blame themselves. And that's not what you're talking about with your visualizations. It's more, uh, tell me the tell me the science backed and like why visualizing what you want is okay to do. Yes. So I do believe that for some people it's wonderful. And I, yeah. I think that it is great for, for motivation. It's very good, like motivation for some people that I think are in a stable place. Yeah. But there's a lot of days I feel really unstable <laughs> and I'm not just going to like lay down and be like, I want, you know, I, I want 50,000 new followers by tomorrow. And I'm going to manifest, like, no, I'm actually feeling really down and having imposter syndrome right now. So let's think about this. So 
it's more, I think that's the thing about visualization. It's more of like validating for yourself. It's Mm -hmm. not kind of like, right? It's you, you want to validate where you are in that moment and what's going on. And maybe you are sad or maybe you're scared or worried about something and your brain is taking you to a dark place. So a lot of times yeah. your yeah. brain, take, and that's what anxiety does, right? Your anxiety is like your reactive brain, and it's just going to react to something you're triggered by. And it's going to take you to a dark place sometimes. It can make you start spiraling. Like you said, your what-if thoughts. That's like for me too. I What-if thoughts, right? I just start spir- spiraling. And by rating yourself, right, by really gaining more control over your body and like how you you can rate yourself, you can decide to really shift what's going on in your mind at that moment, right? And you do have these thoughts. You want to become more of an observer of them and recognize that your thoughts don't have power, right? Your thoughts are just thoughts. They seem scary. Your anxiety is trying to make you think they're scary, but they're really just thoughts. You don't really know what's going to happen five minutes from now, five years from now. You just need to be in the present moment. So that's what a visualization exercise really does. And Everything in my book is training the brain to be in the moment, in the present moment. They are more of like what we call guided imagery. If you've ever heard like a guided imagery. Yeah. For example, I said insight timer before. They have something called sleep stories. So if you ever struggle with nighttime anxiety, these sleep stories are basically like a deep meditation, but they use your your imagination to to listen to a story someone is telling with a very calm voice is telling you a story um, that's very descriptive. I've, I've listened to these, by the way. Like, what I love about them is they're low-key boring, but in the best of ways, it's like the story of the man in the castle. And it's like, I don't, the man never even gets into the damn castle and I'm asleep because it's like, he is walking on the grass. It's so mindful, right? Yeah, so I I listened to one about like a lilac field or something, or it's about a flower field. And the reason it's so effective is because the person is is literally describing and using all of the senses to describe what this place is like, like how it smells, how it looks, how it feels. And that's a a huge exercise I write about in the book multiple times is using our senses when we're in the middle of a panic attack to recognize what you see around you, like describe the color and the texture, like what you can feel around you, what you can hear. And that brings you back to the present moment. That is one of the most effective exercises. But that's what visualizations do and these sleep stories do as well is it gives you this image of this calm space. And as quickly as our brain can imagine a dangerous place, like anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Our brain can just make up that we're scared right now, that something bad's going to happen. Our brain can also reverse that by using these exercises and, and remembering that we're safe right now. And we're in, you know, we can imagine ourselves in these safe places and our body responds to that. And I think a lot of people with anxiety go, well, I've got to imagine the worst case because that's how I stay safe. And it's like, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't. Again, only if the bear is actually there. But yeah, it's, right. it's funny. So you're bringing up something for me that I never realized the sleep stories were about, which is it's not that they're boring you to sleep. It's that you're using you're, you're just letting someone tell you what to think. You're using your imagination. And oddly, it doesn't stimulate your brain to keep you awake. I don't know how that works. It's kind of magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's basically tapping into a different part of the brain, right? It's and and it's it's activating that part of your body, right? The rest and digest part by creating this image in your mind that is complete, like serene, right? And 
and calming. Now, obviously, everybody has different traumas. So, like, if you something happened to you on a beach, don't listen to a beach, you know, scene. <laughs> if you've been bitten by a shark, please turn off the beach. Maybe the beach wouldn't be the best place. I don't know. You know, but that's why this book is about creating your own toolkit, right? You're not going to put, like, the beach visualization. I have in my toolkit, I love... Um, three visualization exercises that I write in the book is called My Happy Place, The Serene Beach Scene, and Private Garden. Like, I love mm. nature. Yeah. So, yeah. like, nature for me is always healing. So whatever I can do to imagine myself in some type of nature outside is going to be in my toolkit. Other people might be like, no, I want to be, you know, in my bed. It's just about figuring out what works for you. You talk about distraction and you offer short-term distraction solutions for, um, you know, when you're anxious. And of course, you know, we always hear, feel your feelings, don't distract. But you're not saying that. You're just saying like, in the moment, right? What What is a distraction technique? Um, and people listening might go, I, I'm not supposed to distract. What do you mean by that? Okay, so this, and I explain this kind of in the first part of the chapter. So um, you can read more information about why this is effective. But in the short of it, if you are finding that your rating is going up to like a five or a six, right? We want to get in. We want to stay in that like below five range. That's like ideal. Your anxious rating of one to 10. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, that's ideal. So if you find yourself like getting closer four or five, you know, all that, using a distraction technique, like for me, I love, I'll watch a certain TV show. I'll watch like The Office and it, completely gets my mind out of something or a movie or I'll do like a game, a distraction game on my phone. I'll do an app. Um, and that is in and of itself, it helps me physically. It helps my body not to respond physically. So I, when my brain is starting to literally go to a place that's going darker and saying, oh my gosh, I'm scared. I'm feeling anxious. I'm getting scared. What's going on? Everything's going to start spiraling. Being able to just distract myself quickly and know that, yes, it, now I know this already, that it's not a, a long-term solution, right? Like distraction ideas are not long-term solutions. So in my mind, I already know that, right? I have this toolkit. Like I know that when I put on the office, I'm not saying, oh, good, I'm going to not be anxious at all ever again. I'm trying to regulate my nervous system right now. And I need to kind of like focus or and a lot, another one is I'll get up and I'll walk. I'll take, I'll move my body and I'll get up and I'll go into a different room or I'll take a walk outside. And it's all about just regulating my nervous system. So these, this is another way of just helping your sympathetic nervous system not explode. And then as you're, as you know, your body's getting um, a little bit more calmer, maybe you're into these shows, then you can do some of these other exercises, right? You're more like, okay, now I kind of think, feel like I'm ready for a meditation now. Or yeah. So that so, makes sense. Cause I, I have a little like toolkit that I bring on planes um, that I don't do so much anymore. Cause I really don't have the, the phobia as much, but there are times when I've taken a fashion magazine just looked at pictures and just distracted myself to get down to a level where I'm no longer about to go full-blown panic, then, then I can think about it. Then I can breathe if I want. That's really what it is because your brain, as you start to get to a more panic attack mode, your brain is not thinking rationally. So 
you might not be thinking, oh, I'm going to try this breath exercise right now. You're just thinking, oh my gosh, something's going to happen. Something, I'm scared. I'm really scared right now. And if you can if you can find what works for you to kind of just distract you from that for a little while and then recognize, okay, my body is like at a balanced state again for the most part, but I know obviously I need to like, I'm still, there's still something that's making me feel uncomfortable. So let's like figure out how we can, what else we can do. So no, it's not a long-term solution. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to utilize the fact that you're a therapist and you're going to give me like a mini session. You talk about making vision boards in your book. Now, this is something I used to do all the time. I'm living in New York right now. My apartment there's really, really small. And I, I love making a vision board. But I think, well, I don't want to hang it up. It's too small in here. And I don't want to put it in a closet and then take it out. So I get the perfectionism. I don't want to do it. So then I go, well, okay, well, you know, maybe make an online vision board. And I've Googled online vision board websites. I have two apps and I won't do them because I'm like, it doesn't count to do it on the phone. So now I can't do it because I don't want to do one visually, like physically. And I don't think it counts on the app. And all day long, I think I'd like to make a vision board. So what do I do here? What is the importance of doing one for you? Why is it so important? Because I do like the idea of getting the thoughts out of my head and somewhere I can see them. And I do have like goal and dreams, like lists that I make, but that's not working for me. I want to see it in pictures. And I also just want to do it because I just, I feel like, why not? It's like an untapped thing. And like, maybe I'll, something will come of it. I don't know what will come of it. Like if, if the actual goal will come true or I'll just learn something about myself, but I feel like something saying, hey, something's going to shift. And I really don't mean like I'm going to manifest, but something's going to shift if you do this. Like, But I think it sounds like to me, because you've said this earlier in our conversation, that the perfectionist part of you is keeping you from starting it, that there's some resistance that if you resistance. do it the wrong way, then it's not going to happen. Right. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right. If I do it the wrong way, it, whatever that is, is right. not whatever you're happen. hoping to get out of it might not happen. So that's where a lot of procrastination and avoidance comes in because we're really scared that we'll either fail at it and we don't, we'd rather just not even know than to try it. So here's another exercise for you. Yeah. If someone, if, if like a best friend came to you or someone you love came to you and said that same exact thing, what kind of advice would you give them? I'd probably say it a lot differently than like a therapist would, but I'd be like, just make a fucking vision board. What are you embarrassed to put it up in your kitchen? That's probably what it is. You're embarrassed. You're embarrassed that you're in your forties and you're making a fucking vision board like you did in your twenties. Like what in your life hasn't come true that you need to make a vision board? You know, that's, well, that's, I'd say that to the friend. I'd say, that's what you're thinking, but make the goddamn vision board. There's, it's great. You should make it when you're 80. It's what is wrong with you? You're judging yourself. I love that. But can you say that again in a more self-compassionate way to that person? Well, yes, probably. (laughs) Because that was so good and very much like you learned a lot about yourself just then, right? Like, why am I embarrassed at 40 to do this? Like, there's something in me that feels embarrassed. So what would I say to someone? And that's what you really want to say to yourself, but in a compassionate way. So I'd say, okay. It's funny because at first I thought I was embarrassed to make the vision board and have it up just because it looks cheesy. But it's like, I have so many cheesy things in my apartment that make me happy. Like maybe someone wouldn't like the wallpaper I have, but to me, I think it's cool. So it's really about like, oh, do you still need to do this? Oh, Jen, you know? And so 
which nobody would do. Everyone I know would be like, I should make one. I hang out with people that make vision boards. I don't have anyone in my life that would judge that. Um, so I would say to myself, yeah, I know it probably feels a little uncomfortable to make a vision board because you're saying, but Jen, you're not saying things haven't gone right in your life and that, you know, you need to keep doing this. You're a, you want a big life. You have a big life. You keep achieving so much. You keep learning and growing and having so many new experiences. You're just asking for more. Maybe you will have some of the same goals that didn't come true, but maybe they're not supposed to yet. But just make a vision board. You're just cutting out pictures and putting them on a thing. I mean, it's supposed to be fun. Don't, don't do it unless it's fun, but you're not going to do it beating yourself up. Yes. And, and you just said, you said a word in all that. What did I say? Judgment. Judgment. So a lot of times you saying, I feel embarrassed, you know, there's, there's probably a part of you that feels judged sometimes, or you don't want to feel judged by other people. But every time that we think about being judged from other people, we're really judging ourselves. Yeah. Because if we loved who we were and didn't give a shit, like we don't care if like five people were in the room telling us that we sucked. We wouldn't care. So it's really me. I'm judging me. Because honestly, I am the only one that's going to see that vision board. If I have some people over, yeah, I might move it in the closet just because it's my private thing. Maybe I won't. So who is the big bad wolf in this situation? Me. Yeah, Um, you just... But give yourself some credit because you're diving deep into your own psyche, right? And your worldview about yourself and your and other people and why there's certain things that you might choose to do or certain environments that make you feel uncomfortable. That's going to be really telling. If you can have some, like for everyone going through this journey, being able to have more awareness of yourself and your own triggers and your thoughts and your feelings and your reactions to things is going to be the healthiest place to start. So you're becoming more aware of your emotions too, right? Just mm-hmm. having this short conversation, the feeling word that came up for you was embarrassed, right? So maybe you ask yourself and you dive deeper later. Maybe, I don't know if you like to journal or whatever, but you know, why would I feel so embarrassed if somebody saw this? Like, why would that even matter to me? Why is the judgment there? Like, you can ask yourself those questions and dive deeper into your own and get more awareness of your your own judgment and why that might be happening. Well, this is so exciting because I knew I was going to ask you this question. I had a feeling where it might go, where it's going to be just more about like procrastination and perfectionism. But I really didn't think that I would uncover that I'm judging myself and that I'm embarrassed and that I think it's just like I'm to anyone listening, like this is the fun of therapy, but you can also get Allison's book and do exercises like this on your own. And and like you said, journaling, I like to think I love doing it, but man, do I have to force myself. And then once I'm doing it, I love it. It's so, it is really hard to start. If, if anyone listening hasn't started yet, I can definitely, and that's why actually my chapter that's dedicated to journaling, I have like, I don't know, over a hundred prompts to use that actually will prompt you into whatever type of anxiety you're having or what part of your life you're feeling like is lacking. Um, because I think a lot of people with anxiety like direction and structure. So sometimes yeah. just saying, okay, go journal. You're just like, okay, what am I writing about? Thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. I mean, if you take one thing on your plane ride with you, or if you're afraid to fly, if you just start here. I keep holding it up, Allison. No one is looking at this. (laughs) 
No, I appreciate it. I know you keep holding it up. And I love that when you held it up, you have um, like post-it notes on different pages because that's what people have been telling me. They've been putting different um, post-its and just so they can flip through to the page that they need. And my whole, you know, in talking to my publisher initially, the whole, um, you know, vision I had for this book was to make it portable where like you take it with you. Like you take it with you wherever you are and you, you know, bookmark those pages. And so that almost can make people feel safe in and of itself just to have the book with them. Absolutely. Um, I know for sure when I have objects with me that have information I need, it it does make me feel safe, especially when you bookmark something because it means, oh, I've been here before and I got through it. All right. Who's going to make a vision board with me? If you make a vision board, will you send me a photo of it? You can tag me on Twitter at Jen Kirkman or on Instagram in the stories at Jen Kirkman or email me anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. Show me your vision boards. I actually, I told Allison that in the wrap up to this episode, I would give my progress report, but I tend to record a lot of these intros and outros a few weeks before each episode. So I am coming to you from the past as I talk. Uh, I've probably made some of my vision board already. I did today buy poster board, and I I bought a huge one. I mean, I've made vision boards in the past. I think this might be the biggest amount of poster board I've ever purchased. It's a huge, huge size. So I got a lot of visions, and I've got magazines. I've got glue, all kinds of—I really went nuts on the glue all different kinds. I don't know if I'm going to be in the mood for like an Elmer's kind of paint, rubber glue. I've got the stick glue. I've got a spray glue. We'll just say, you know, we'll see what mood I'm in, but I'll keep you updated on my vision board, but I will be doing it. She really did in that quick little mini therapy session. She made me realize that I was just in full self-judgment and I'm really only holding myself back from having an experience by judging myself. Now, again, am I going to make the vision board and all my dreams are going to come true? Uh, Probably not. Maybe not. Maybe. But the point is, it's not that I'm missing out on all my dreams coming true if I don't make a vision board. It's just that I'm missing out on doing an activity one day for no good reason. You know, it's not dangerous. It doesn't harm myself or others. And it's something I want to do. The only reason I'm not doing it is from a completely judgmental place and a place that is not really from a place of self-love or compassion. So there's no reason to stay in avoidance of it because I might feel a little embarrassed. Maybe that embarrassment about making the vision board will be instructive in some way. Maybe I'll learn something from it. Maybe I'll get an interesting story out of it. Who knows? Or maybe nothing. I'll feel embarrassed and it'll pass because everything passes, right? So anyway, let's do the takeaways from my conversation with Allison. And again, these are always up on my website, jenkirkman.com, click Anxiety Bites, but the link is right there in the show notes. And so you can read these, print them out, whatever you do, send them to a friend. So here are the takeaways from my chat with Allison. Anxiety and depression are very much connected, even though the symptoms look very different, the thoughts of an anxious or depressed person, very similar. The word trauma doesn't always have to stand for a major catastrophe or abuse. There are small T traumas that happen to us in childhood, aka bullying, that stick with us. 
because children don't have language yet to express their feelings, their anxiety is somatic for, for them, which means in their body. If you're not taught as a child how to face a feeling by putting a word to it and saying, I feel, you are not going to just automatically know how to do that when you become an adult. Part of the journey of mental health is really learning to love who you are. Caregivers and parents may be wonderful, but they can't protect their children from everything in the world. And some children can feel anxiety because seeing their caregivers or parents not know how to protect them makes them feel out of control, but it's a normal part of development. An example of a little T trauma is like that feeling of loss and control, but not knowing how to regulate yourself, meaning you don't know how to go from the sympathetic nervous system in overdrive, fight or flight, to letting the parasympathetic nervous system take over, rest and digest. People with anxiety should create a toolkit of strategies, exercises, coping tools that help regulate the nervous system. It can be breathing exercises, yoga, meditation, listening to a podcast, listening to an app, etc. Having an anxiety toolkit is a daily practice. It's very difficult to just stop a panic attack with a breathing exercise when you're in the middle of one. If you're not practicing those breathing exercises every day when you're not feeling anxious or panicked. One part of mastering anxiety is through cognitive behavior therapy. And that just means understanding your intrusive thought patterns, what thoughts are irrational, and how to challenge those thoughts while finding compassion for yourself in the process. Rating how anxious you are on a scale of one to 10, one being the most calm, 10 the most scared and anxious you've ever felt. Doing this every day is a good way to get to know your anxiety patterns. Check out the Insight Timer. That's an app. It's a great resource for free guided meditations and other things. Allison sees that most of her clients and patients who suffer from anxiety tend to suffer from the disease of perfectionism. In cognitive behavioral therapy, there's something called core beliefs. So these are beliefs that we have about ourselves. They create our worldview, how we see and perceive the world, and they're very deep-rooted. And it can be more difficult to challenge our core beliefs than it is to challenge a thought or to reframe a thought. A common core belief of anxious people is that they're not, quote, good enough. Practicing visualization is a way to train the brain to be in the present moment, get away from what-if thoughts, for example. Guided imagery is a really good practice for this. For people with trouble sleeping, Allison recommends listening to sleep stories. It's where someone with a calm voice tells you a very descriptive story, and you follow along in your mind, and it helps your mind tap into that rest and digest parasympathetic response. And trust me, I have listened to these and I am passed out within usually seven minutes. <laughs> I call them boring. Allison, of course, has a more scientific way of putting it. Anyway, in a moment of high anxiety, using distraction techniques like watching a favorite TV show, listening to music, looking at a magazine, it can be a good way to calm you down enough so that you can then get into a breathing exercise or a meditation that gets you uh, to regulate your sympathetic nervous system. Notice the way you talk to yourself and ask yourself if you'd talk to a friend this way. 
And finally, don't judge yourself about making a vision board. Again, thank you for listening. Rate the podcast five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Those are the places that allow you to leave podcast reviews. Tell a friend about the show. And again, remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.